0: Well, hello everybody
1: and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is uh, Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter Mac in Melbourne, uh, joined as ever by my host Renu Epen. Uh, how are you Renu?
2: Good morning Declan. It's been interesting times for us in Melbourne. Yeah. We're in the aftermath of protests and earthquakes and late-breaking <laughs> as- abstracts at ESMO.
1: Yeah, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? It's been
2: quite a that week, Bloody yeah. earthquake
1: yesterday, that really, that was very entertaining I the think, first thing uh, in the morning.
2: It would have brought back uh, a lot of memories of Christchurch for, for many urologists. Yeah, certainly, there uh, for actually. me. Yeah.
1: yeah, we were stuck in Christchurch 10 years yeah. ago when the big one went off. Mm. Uh, the USANDS meeting was happening, and I had a total flashback yesterday when the building yeah, started shaking me too. Oh, my God, that feels like that bloody earthquake. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but there you go. Uh, anyway, we won't need to talk about the earthquake today, but we have some sort of earth-shattering That's paper right. to discuss. <laughs> Did you like that segue? Along the same theme. Very <laughs> cheesy. Um, yeah, so uh, today we want to talk about um, ESMO because, of course, ESMO happened at the weekend in Paris, and there were a couple of massive uh, prostate cancer papers that came out of it uh, this week, plus a bunch of other stuff. And we could talk about this, a whole bunch of stuff, but what we've decided to focus on today is one of the really big ones from the presidential session, and it was the latest data from Stampede That's on the right. M-Zero. High-risk patients. Yeah, um, and so we're joined in the studio as well today by our colleague here at Peter Mac, uh, Associate Professor Arun Azad. Uh, good morning, Arun. Thanks for coming in. Morning. Thanks, Arun. Um,
3: Declan and Renu, It's very, very early for a medical oncologist. So <laughs> if I fall asleep, just poke me and I'll wake up.
1: Well, I'm very impressed because here in Melbourne, uh, we had to get a run here at 5:45 in the morning, and this is this is before start time, isn't it? Yeah, I,
3: I think medical oncologists are banned from the hospital that early, aren't they? So <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there's a you're not allowed in. The, I somehow snuck in anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. you
1: know, get used to it. He looks, suits him. He looks good, doesn't he? He does. He looks ready. I think it suits him. Yeah. <laughs> I
3: left my wife with the, with uh, with our baby, and uh, normally I get up early and take care of him to give her a bit of a sleeping but uh, anyway, I'll uh, pay the price later
2: He's a new parent, he's used to surgical hours <laughs> <laughs> Yeah
1: he is, well great to have you around, and thanks for coming in and um, and I think a big part of the reason why he agreed to come in at this Ungodly Hour of the Morning is that we have um, a couple of fantastic guests um, uh, on this morning uh, dialing in from Europe um, who are investigators, uh, authors on this big stampede paper that we've got and so it's a great privilege to, uh, to welcome them, all friends uh, of us here in Australia um, and me as a, a a proud European. It's a great pleasure to welcome um, uh, Professor Noel Clark, um, urologies, uh, urologist from the Christie in Manchester and Professor of Urologic Oncology. Uh, Noel, good evening in the UK and thank you very much for joining us.
0: Hello everyone, uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well thanks so much and Noel's actually on holidays down in the, in the West Country in England but has kindly agreed to dial in for a bit of distraction this evening so thanks very much Noel and also uh, joining us from uh, Switzerland, uh, Professor Silky Gillison, very well known to lots of Australian uh, crowds here um, Silky, medical oncologist uh, at the Oncology Institute of Southern Switzerland uh, Silkie, thanks so much uh, for joining us this evening Thank
4: you for inviting us yeah,
1: so, look, thanks very much, and we'll go straight to the, uh, the business because um, both Noel and uh, Silky are very involved in Stampede. Of course, Noel was one of the original um, co-PIs that set Stampede up, that planned the whole thing, this amazing uh, multi-arm, multi-stage study. What were your, your thoughts uh, on, on, on Stampede just as a, an entity, Arun, before we get into it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, in, well, certainly within prostate cancer mm-hmm, and I think almost across medical oncology In general, it's a unique uh, entity, I mean, to have produced, uh, you know, so many... You know, landmark practice shaping, practice changing papers from the one uh, adaptive clinical trial platform is, you know, remarkable. Uh, and and to continue to do it, you know, I think uh, I'm not sure that anywhere else in the world could, could replicate it um, outside of the UK. It's obviously extended to Switzerland as well, but it's an incredible um, entity. Um, we certainly could never do that in a country like Australia. So hats off to Noel and Nick James and all the other uh, amazing uh, team at Stampede.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Congrats, Noel. Take a bow again on behalf of Stampede. <laughs> uh, we salute you. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, well, if I could say,
0: uh, I'd like to take a bow on behalf of all the all the people who've participated in Stampede. We have over 140 uh, centres uh, in the UK and Switzerland. We have about 11,000 uh, patients in these first phases of Stampede, and we've just planned uh, the next 10 to 12 years of the trial. So uh, it's going to That's run incredible. and run. So uh, Yeah, it's been a big, big international effort. And thanks to all who've taken part in it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I know both yourself and Silky are on the strategy committee, but for those aren't, who aren't that familiar with it, um, you know, the, the uniqueness of this continuously running platform where there's a continuous control arm uh, of patients starting ADT for their nasty prostate cancer, and then you keep adding new intervention arms. So uh, I remember Nick shows, Nick James, your, your co-PI colleague, shows this amazing graph of how long it took to get the first arm running, um, which is very typical for starting a randomized trial and adding all the sides. And then how quickly you add all the rest of the arms, because it's already up and running. You're just adding an arm and so it's an incredibly efficient way of testing something new against the standard of care and also being able to adjust the standard of care uh, based on your own data. So the control arm today is very different to what it was 10 or 12 years ago I recall when I was working in the UK when Stampede started.
0: Yes and I I mean it's been very gratifying to see. I mean the recent recovery trial which is the big COVID-19 trial run in the UK, which uh, proved that dexamethasone was effective in COVID-19 was based on Stampede. And it's now started to become a model, This the, the MAMS uh, model, the multi-arm, multi-stage model, for other trials such as malaria treatments, uh, various infected diseases of different types, and, of course, many other cancer trials. So uh, it, I think it's been quite groundbreaking of itself as a trial design. Yeah. And that was down to the team at the MRC, uh, Max Palmer and co, uh, who came up with the concept. Yeah,
1: fantastic. Well, great acknowledgement. We'll put links out to the Stampede website um, in the show notes. So let's go and talk about this presidential address that um, your colleague uh, Gert Attard um, uh, presented at ESMO at the weekend. So this is, um, it's not a unique arm actually of Stampede, is it? It's a combination um, analysis that was done, but in a really interesting population. It's in the so-called M0 high risk population. So can you just give us a quick overview of this population and, and then of this study?
0: Well, yes. Thanks, Ted. Um When we first conceived the study uh, in 2004, I think we just had a different idea of the natural history of M1 and M0 disease. We didn't really understand it that well. And what turned out was that M0 disease had a much longer natural history uh, than uh, the patients who presented with de novo metastatic disease. It seems obvious now, but it wasn't as obvious then. Um, and so we planned it for what we termed high-risk prostate cancer. In other words, prostate cancer that we thought people was, was, were going to die of if they weren't treated effectively. Now, as the trial evolved, it became clear that the M1 and M0 needed to be split off uh, for analysis. So we've always reported M0s and M1s together, but we've sub-reported the uh, M1s, where most of the big hitter papers have been. And, of course, we've had to wait for the M0 population to mature because uh, stampede is not uh, is not analysed on the basis of time, it's analysed on the basis of events in the control arm of the study so naturally the M0 control arm events were uh, quite extended so that, uh, that that's the rationale behind us splitting it off now for M0 high risk um, we had a category which was two of, of, uh, of three um, criteria, one was a T3, T4, uh, PSAs of <clears throat> 40 or more, or any Gleason, eight and above. Uh, and if you had two of those three criteria, you got into the trial as an N0 patient. So, in fact, that actually fits quite a number of patients um, that are currently, we would regard as high risk, who are currently having operations or radiotherapy. Um, and w- we further added a modification to the trial after the publication of the uh, SBCG7 and PRO7 NCICP3 trials, which were <clears throat> showed that radiotherapy plus ADT was a standard of care. So, for the purposes of this element of our report, that's the Abbey and Abienza combinations against standard ADT, radiotherapy was mandated for all these patients. Now, we had about uh, uh, 2,000, just under 2,000 patients in this group. and um, when the ISCAP collaboration reported um, its, its findings in 2017, and a number of us were involved in that, this was um, coordinated by Chris Sweeney and the team in Boston. It pulled in all the trial data from MRC trials, ERTC trials, and so on, and the, uh, uh, the uh, American trials. Um, so that showed from 24,000 patients included in that analysis that metastasis-free survival was a direct surrogate of absolute survival in M0 disease. So when that result came out, which is 2017, uh, we as a trial management group got together to reconsider our endpoint, because our endpoint originally was overall survival. And of course, that's a long endpoint in an M0 trial. So we decided uh, two things. One was to elect our metastasis-free survival as the endpoint. And the second thing was to put together the Abbey uh, adt and the Abienza adt arms of the trial. Uh, now, they started at different time points. Um, um, Abi started in and around um, 2011, 2012, and Abienza started in and around uh, 2014. Um, but the control arm was the same, and all the measures were the same, so we had... Uh, something like uh, five years follow-up for Abienza uh, and we had I think a median of something like 72 uh, months uh, overall for the trial so it was long enough to get a decent measure of the endpoint and to have enough events in the control arm so that really was the basis uh, for our analysing the study and presenting it at ESMO this time and we've now got a paper in submission currently uh, to one of the major journals so the detail's all there um Now, what we found was it made us all smile. You need a bit of luck when you're running a trial. So many people work in trials, so much effort goes in, and the trial is often negative. And when it comes out positive, well, everybody has a big smile on their face, and you think, right, this is going to make a difference, and I think it will. So we had a median age of 68 years, and uh, the median PSA uh, was 34. Um, And virtually all of the patients had had... um, Radiotherapy to so the primary. Now, the important thing in the protocol was that the um, combination therapy, that's uh, ADT Abby or ADT uh, was only given for 24 months. It wasn't given continuously. And that was a, 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 a conscious decision because we felt that um, M0 patients had a much better prognosis. And uh, most of the patients got a full 24 months. Um, the combinations got a little less. That was about 20. One month, just under, uh, and they had to stop <clears throat> largely because of um, added complications. I'll come to that in a minute. Now, when we looked at the um, um, the major endpoint, which is metastasis-free survival, uh, what we saw was a major difference. A hazard ratio of 0.53, which is a really big difference uh, in a trial with a six-year metastasis-free survival improvement. Uh, from 69 to 42 uh, percent to 42 percent uh, to 82 percent, um, and um, that's a big difference. Uh, and we know that MFS is a direct correlate uh, of, uh, of OS. And when we plotted the uh, of the uh, metastasis-free survival for both Abi Abby and Abienza combinations, uh, we didn't see a big difference. So survive, the um, hazard ratio was the same and although one trial had run for a little longer than the other, uh, one element of it, should I say, um, the survival curves were almost identical. Um, So what we concluded from that was that uh, the combination was effective, but the enzalutamide didn't seem to add anything to the abiraterone uh, other than complications, which I'll come to in a minute, as I say. Uh, We found that this was effective across the piece, Um, whether the patients had no positive or negative disease on conventional imaging, that's important to stress. Um, It didn't make any difference whether you were under 70 or over 70. Um, uh, There were some differences with the poorer performance uh, status patients, um, but pretty much uh, the drug combination worked uh, across uh, the whole spectrum. When we come to overall survival, we were quite pleased to see that we didn't see an excess uh, number of deaths as a a consequence of the treatment, but we did see a general um, improvement in survival with the combination. That hazard ratio was 0.6. But looking at that in more detail, when we came to prostate cancer-specific survival, in other words, this is prostate cancer which is causing death, uh, we found that there was a halving of the prostate cancer death rate. Uh, for the duration of the trial. And when we looked at progression-free survival, well, there was a huge reduction uh, in in, uh, the number of patients progressing. That hazard ratio was Uh, 0.44, with a a huge, huge p-value, I think it was 10 to the minus 15. Um, We did see adverse events, predominantly in the combination arm, and those were manifest uh, largely as fatigue and hypertension. So our overall conclusion from the study, which was very strongly positive uh, for the use of the combination, was that two years of uh, abiraterone-based therapy significantly improves metastasis-free survival, overall survival, and prostate cancer-specific survival in this group of high-risk n patients starting ADT, and that it should be considered as a new standard of care. And our secondary conclusion was that the addition of to abiraterone really didn't do anything for efficacy. It simply added uh, to the complication rate. So we'll now be going forward with uh, pursuing this, certainly in in our country. Uh, We have to seek funding and recognition for this, but the detail will be out, I hope, uh, in one of the major papers. As I say, we have the publication in already uh, to one of the major cancer journals, and that will be... (laughs) at the mercy of the reviewers, but I'm confident that it will get in somewhere uh, at a very high level. So that's where we are and I hope we've changed the standard of care. I Thanks. think, you, and I think you <laughs> have. should
2: just uh, it's, end the podcast that's right? just no, That was amazing. just a fantastic summary. <laughs>
1: B- brilliant summary, and it summarises why, why there is so much interest in yeah. this paper. Really big thing, and that's true, Silky. We'll go through some of the detail and ask the questions in a second, but that's it, a very accurate take-home message, isn't it, that this is practice changing? I remember it was like after charted, You're feeling it immediately. I felt it yesterday <laughs> when I was seeing patients, uh, an international patient I was advising that I said, well, I think this is the new standard of care in your situation. Is, yeah. is this true, Silky?
4: Yeah, clearly also for us, I I think, um, I don't know what what Noel thinks, but I really was the overall survival benefit of um, with a hazard ratio of 0.6 was really also for us, probably a surprise, right? It was so good. And I, I don't know, Noel, if you mentioned it. So there were also, I think, Patients, we should maybe mention that high risk defined by node positive disease. So so I guess that was an important part as well um, of the patients. And, And there, interestingly, NCCN had already had abiratron since I think last year. Um, in their algorithm for treatment, because uh, Nick James showed once, remember, that that kind of very preliminary data of the AB only um, that we reported together with the M1s. So, so I guess a little bit we had already the feeling, but now obviously we have much, much better data.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, um, Arun, what do you think? Is it going to have uh, immediate acceptance here as a change in uh, standard of care? Uh, pending <coughs> regulatory approvals and so on?
3: Yeah, I think it, it does, Declan. I mean, the challenge here, and we'll probably talk about it more, is incorporating into the imaging um, paradigms in Australia where these men get PSMA <laughs> pets and then many of them will have uh, more advanced, I mean, their stage migration, and then how do people interpret that? But my argument against that is that, I- in the end, the imaging is just the... You, you know what you detect on your imaging tool is just a function of its sensitivity, and so these men with M zero by conventional imaging, we know many of them will be upstaged by PET, but it's the same biology, it's the same cancer. It's just you're detecting more cancer with a more sensitive imaging modality. You know, um, with more sensitive imaging modality, and in the end, what it shows is that um, two things for me is that the androgen receptor you know, is the key, is the king for everything we talk about in all other therapeutic modalities, the androgen receptor is still, has always been, is still and will always be the king in terms of, you know, um, prostate cancer therapy, systemic therapy. Um, And then earlier use of these drugs, we've seen it from, you know, M1 CRPC, post-chemo, then pre-chemo, then non-metastatic CRPC, and, and mhspc and now m0 you know castration sensitive disease we just see a consistent and increasing benefit from these drugs from using them earlier and if you're a patient you know in this situation you'd want these drugs earlier you know for all the discussion around imaging and uh, access and cost and toxicity if you're a patient who fit the criteria for this it was your relative you're the patient you'd want two years of abby i mean it's you know, you've uh, it's it would it would you would it's, it's it's clear. You know, it's very clear for all the other noise that happens. It's clear that patients would want this,
1: and and we will go on and talk about uh, imaging in a moment, I suppose. But I do agree with your point. I think that uh, it's not that important. Interestingly, because what has typically happened here in Australia, uh, as as Noel and Silky know, is that this type of patient who turns up sixty-eight with a PSA of thirty-four and has a biopsy will get a PSMA PET CT as their initial staging, and that's because it's post-pro-PSMA and it's easy to access. And yeah, sure, a lot of these will actually have some degree of metastatic disease that you'll see on a PSMA PET. And interestingly, then... Our usual challenge is trying to say, well, this is M, uh, you know, M1 HSPC visible on novel imaging only. How are we going to extrapolate from um, Enzymet and Titan and Stampede and charted into this population? Because we're always thinking, well, we're going to do some sort of combination therapy. Is it high volume, low volume, etc.? But so, so it only complicates it um, for us. Whereas actually, if if you look at the current Stampede data and say, well, is he M0 on conventional imaging? Then we now have a brand new easy to understand paradigm that we can offer these patients without even worrying about uh, what the PET scan shows.
3: And I I don't think we should underestimate the potential importance of local control. You know, Declan, again, I think sometimes when you're upstage with PET, uh, sitting in MDT meetings, tumour board meetings, whatever you want to call them, as a medical oncologist, it's interesting sometimes um, seeing nihilism from certain colleagues about local, you know, local therapy. And I think, you know, Stampede, you know, reinforces the importance of that in terms of oncological control for local, of local disease, but also, you know, would, we, would Stampede have achieved the same if they'd just given ABBY plus or minus, you know, or versus, you know, ABBY plus, plus or minus enza without the local control, <coughs> um, uh, without giving radiotherapy? I don't know that it would have. I mean, there is, we know there's a synergy between radiotherapy and androgen, you know, um, uh, targeting the androgen receptor. Um, so I think we shouldn't, it's a re- good reminder that we should not forget about, that we should not exclude or forget about local control, even in these patients with very high risk disease. No, yeah. Legend,
4: can, I, Legend, can I ask one, some, one thing? Because you said um, metastatic on PSMA PET only. So, but how do you know that? Are you always doing also a bone scan and obviously the, probably the CT scan you have with contrast in your, I don't know how you're doing it. Are you always giving Yoda contrast as well for the CT scan of the pet?
1: Uh, you know so the answer is um, very often we're trying to extrapolate backwards and we're looking at them in the tumour board and we can see the CT component because initial staging CTs get a contrast CT so at least you've got that and we can see sclerotic lesions but but we only go back and do a bone scan for these patients if it's to fit a trial or really to help um, with their management um, with management advice on it I think. So it is an extrapolation um, and for example you know a typical tail from that here is we now have these um, M0CRPC drugs um, uh, approved in Australia um, but as you know um, uh, we've shown that almost all those patients are M1 on novel imaging but to meet their regulatory or the other imp- approval we'll go backwards and do conventional imaging just to prove that they are M0CRPC. We don't want to end up doing that but look the, as you know the reality here is that uh, these patients um, uh, in Australia will have initial staging with PSMA PET and it's just it's kind of is just the way it is but I think for the audience out there listening who might have access to PSMA PET in other countries as well it is important to remember the simplicity of what Stampede showed um, is that these patients benefit as uh, Arun re-emphasized from combined approach targeting um, androgen synthesis pathways and and we shouldn't try and overcomplicate it too much with PET imaging but I'm very interested in your thoughts uh, on that Silky Uh, how is PET imaging going to fit into this
4: yeah, I guess we, we need to have a, a, a lot of, of new data for that. So, so I, I have to say in that situation right now, it makes also a lot of problems, right? Especially because I, I know you're using gallium PET-CT, but it's probably a bit more specific. Um, whereas in a lot of other countries, for example, um, here in Switzerland, we're using now fluoride. And that goes much more on specifically to the bone. And I've seen too many patients with some PSMA spots um, in that fluoride PSMA pet that have never been really confirmed to be metastasis. And as also said, right? Then then they all of a sudden go into a palliative treatment setting. And that I find a bit dangerous um and also we have always the same thing by right? noel i mean we remember i remember that when in the uk everyone was doing mris um for the prostate and and they had obviously mark emberton had a fan, had fantastic readers of these mris right And in a lot of other countries, they were doing one MRI a month and couldn't read it. And I think it's now maybe a bit the same problem with these PSMA PET CTs, especially if they're using these fluoride components. And and I guess I I would put like a a really big attention mark there and that people would need a learning curve um, to, to show first before they are allowed to read these PET scans.
0: Well, if I may, um, Declan and team and Silky, I I agree completely because um, what we have shown with the Stampede data and the analyses of um, conventional imaging, which, again, we published in separate uh, papers, the JAMA 2020 paper, the 2021 paper showed this, was that the bone scan and CT is a predictive factor. It's not prognostic. In other words, if you have the abnormality, you have the potential benefit of the treatment. And uh, it it is a concern in some of the PSMA papers that have been published and important ones coming from Australia, uh, that clinicians do change their treatment choices as a consequence of the PSMA scan. And the natural corollary of that, of course, is that a patient doesn't necessarily get treatment that they would benefit from. Um, as defined by conventional imaging so uh, we need to work out what PSNA means and which particular patients need different treatments when they've got different PSNA scan characteristics leaving aside the quality control issue which Silky has quite rightly raised and we have a quite a problem in the UK I think uh, in relation to the quality of MR reporting in prostates which is very variable I have to say.
1: Yeah, uh, even in a country with a lot of m um While we're on the PSMA thing, uh, renew. So, and also Noel, the other thing I want to dovetails into it is these high risk men, because um, uh, as as Noel knows, as a urologist and, and us too, is when we think high risk um, M0, mm. we're thinking, you know, NCCN, EAU, Damico right, classification, yeah. and we're thinking curative intent treatment, yeah, with a high rate of biochemical relapse, etc. Um, but this is a bit of a different population to what we think, or, or some of our audience think, is high risk. Uh, wouldn't that be fair to say?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to really delineate this patient population so that we can somehow extrapolate it to our everyday care of patients. And it, it, apart from the, the criteria that Noel specified, um, there's also a smaller population of patients who've relapsed after treatment um, in, in the in the study as well, about 3%, I believe.
1: Yeah, tiny amount there, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, and and in that particular population, especially in Australia, they'd be getting a lot of PSMA PET scans.
1: So this is where I think PSMA PET is very confusing, though, mm. because if we think of a new, as you would know, coming into your, your practice, a newly diagnosed patient with high-risk uh, uh, um, query-localised prostate cancer, maybe the PSA is around 20 uh, or thereabouts, and if they have um, conventional imaging up front and ha- and look like M0, um, you know, I presume you're still considering either surgery or radiotherapy, maybe with a multimodal approach with curative intent in mind? Or where do you switch over into, this is a stampede population, I'm thinking long-term ADT only uh, plus plus radiotherapy, and then I'm going to augment it with the Abbey now. So how do you draw the line between I might offer this man an operation uh, as part of a high-risk localised prostate cancer with curative intent um, the paradigm versus no no I'm going straight for continuous ADT plus radiotherapy plus ABBY where, where do you draw that line because I think this is the, the daily challenge from now on because it's so clear that this is a standard care in the far out high risks the PSA is 30-40 etc maybe the people not fit for surgery but what about the ones that are fit for surgery or definitive radiotherapy where, where are you going to draw that line
0: well it's <laughs> that's a really important question Um mm-hmm. We've got pretty good data on this. Uh, we, we've just uh, submitted a paper where we've com- compared a UK practice with US practice based on SEER and the National Prostate Cancer Audit. Uh, and this is um, well over 100,000 patients in each part of the study. Um, so if we take that M0 high-risk population, and we know as surgeons that radiotherapy high-risk localised disease is different in many regards to surgical high risk localized disease, there are certain T3s that we wouldn't operate on. But leaving that aside, um, we think that about 20 to 25% of the incident population in the UK falls into this high risk category. So it's a big chunk of patients. And in the UK, <clears throat> um, about 75% of those patients get treated actively. And the, the remaining 25% are the older, frailer patients, and I think we all know about those. Uh, but when we break that down still further, um, about one in five is treated with an operation, radical prostatectomy. Now, when we looked at the US data, um, the breakdown is fairly similar in terms of incidence, uh, but about 50% of those men using SEER data are actually being treated with surgery, not radiotherapy. And I suspect a great many of those are not receiving any combination treatment. For me, this is not right. Um, You know, this is not a standard of care. There's no evidence, uh, as far as I can see, uh, any level one evidence at all, that surgery is the right thing for these patients as monotherapy. Uh, Now, when you look at the European guidelines for um, the latest edition, what they recommend is that surgery should be used as part of multimodality treatment. The evidence is labeled as strong, Um, but for me, the evidence actually is really level three evidence. It's not at all strong because surgeons haven't done the trials. The clinical oncologists have done the trials. They've done them well. Surgeons have participated, but generally the surgical body internationally has failed, I think, to do what is a very straightforward thing to do. In other words, do the trial and then you're on solid ground. You know what you're doing. And at the moment, I think surgeons don't really know what they're doing. (laughs) <laughs> Says the surgeon, we have to remind right. everybody,
1: eminent of uh, high volume That's prostate right. cancer surgeon. Yeah, it's fair enough, Silky. Right. Fair enough criticism. And look, we uh, in a moment we want to talk about the APCCC, and you can already see this week on, in responses people saying, "Oh, this is a great topic for APCCC to discuss um, the Advanced Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference that you chair." Um, but how do we how do we deal with this real world practice uh, where surgeons haven't produced the data, but maybe a lot of us philosophically extrapolate out from radiotherapy data, or we believe just you know absence. Of evidence, etc., doesn't mean we're not benefiting these patients. I don't know. It's a, it's a really important point, Noel makes.
4: I guess I want to say that probably the EU in the European um, guidelines, Noel, what was meant was if you do surgery, do it at least in that kind of context of multimodality, um, an approach. And that was the strong for that. So if you're doing it, but I have to totally agree with you. Um, I don't know any data that has shown the added value of the surgery in that context. If you then know you have to give radiotherapy and hormonal treatment anyway, so so I guess um, here the surgeons are probably um, yeah have to do the the trials, uh, the prospective trials if they won't really to go against a, a a standard arm that is now extremely strong. I, I wouldn't know how many patients you would need to to show an added value of surgery in that situation. don't know, Noel, what, what do you think?
0: Well, uh, I think you power the trial accordingly, and all of the trials that have shown uh, useful information have been powered in about 1,000 patients, whether it's in... Uh, Scandinavia, whether it's uh, in the URTC, whether it's in the MRC, whether it's in the US. So the surgeons need to get on and do that. Um, But there is an important um, biological uh, question, uh, and that relates to the treatment of the primary. Because what we showed in the 2018 Stampede paper, which is radiotherapy to the primary or not in relation to disease burden, is that the primary does drive the disease uh, in the lower burden setting. And if you treat the primary, then the outcome is improved. Uh, You and I, Silky, have seen the extended follow-up data uh, from uh, radiotherapy for oligometastatic disease, and we know that the longer-term benefit is sustained in those patients. This will be published uh, presently. But what's clear is that, um, the primary has a big contribution to make to driving the disease early on, but then as the disease becomes more progressive, in other words, the burden goes up, then the metastatic component takes over and the primary doesn't drive it anymore, then you have to have systemic treatment. Uh, so the combination of treatment of the primary and treatment of the low-burden metastases is really beneficial. I guess what we haven't addressed is this question of whether surgery uh, will... Have the same effect as radiotherapy? Um, It's a big question, uh, and we need to answer it very we're not going to answer it today point, i suppose I and it's a great topic and maybe
1: we'll have you back on to discuss it again it gets it's one of the questions <laughs> in apccc all the time is how how do we manage this primary issue and do we extrapolate and can we say this and that and it's uh in the absence of data the consensus statement is a useful way of looking at it um but be, before we wrap up on uh, on um, th- this really important paper toxicity is something you mentioned uh, earlier noel um uh, so I, I, the plan was for two years of Abby for these patients but there was quite a high discontinuation rate uh, in in the intervention arm even just with Abby alone I think although nearly everyone did get to two years so have, have you want, have you any final comments on the toxicity um of the Abby and Abby ends arms uh, just to summarize
2: and also um uh, well, uh, generally
0: speaking sorry
2: Rena. oh sorry i was I was gonna say uh, noel in your comment maybe just uh, any concerns that you also have about the long-term uh, implications of of two years of Abby
0: Hmm. Well, I think the the first thing to say is that the combination of um, Abi and ADT uh, was pretty well tolerated. Most of the patients got through that, and the side effect profile was not that dissimilar to ADT alone. Obviously, there was a little bit more toxicity, uh, and we're all familiar with that with Abi. The addition of enzalutamide did add uh, quite significantly to the toxicity, the fatigue and the hypertension particularly, uh, with a, a relative, uh, with a smaller proportion of transaminase increases. Um, so uh, I think the combination, we're pretty clear that that's not helpful. We're currently working on the Stampede dataset. Uh, we've got a, um, a research project, uh, one of a number of research projects in translation, looking at sarcopenia, osteoporosis and other metabolic effects uh, of these combinations. Um, I think it's highly likely um, that there will be an augmented sarcopenic and osteoporotic effect with these agents. They are superandrogen blockers, as we know. And um, What we also know is that that has a, a major effect on musculoskeletal integrity. Um, we'll have some answers to that. I hope in the next year. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but I think one shouldn't forget the osteoporotic effect of long-term combinations, and I think that... Um, two years is quite a significant treatment in this population of patients who, um, on average, are aged about 68.
1: And I think now also, Arun, uh, being able to say to patients that, uh, yeah, this is the toxicity, we're planning this for two years, but have a look at the MFS and the OS when you counsel your patients. Do you feel that this is going to be very straightforward for clinicians and patients to, to accept?
3: Yeah, I think, look, I mean, I, I, th- I think in the end... Um, what 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 motivates patients in this situation they want to be alive they want to be alive and well um, and keeping them free of their cancer is the first step to being alive and uh, alive and well um i think we shouldn't forget about the, forget about forget about the toxicity and i mean people talk about the novel agents the abby and the enza but adt is not great for men in in terms of their long-term metabolic cardiovascular um, bone health etc and I think you know we see um, you know fractures with the with ADT and with and with addition of abienza and so bone health and the use of early you know use of bone resorptive agents like denosumab um, I think will become more you know we're becoming more and more aware of that Um, but in the end you know yes there's toxicity long-term but I mean, men who aren't alive don't get toxicity, uh, long-term toxicity. So the first step is actually keep men alive and, and well. And, you know, it's very clear that, that from, from this population that, that you know, targeting the AR early along with local control is, is achieving that.
1: Yeah, and that's why I think it's yeah. going to very quickly come in as a standard of care around the world as well. And because Abi is quite readily available in many parts of the world, cheap and, and easy, it's probably you know, from today will uh, start to be used, um, you know, in, by, by specialists advising their patients, even outside guidelines, I think.
4: And Declan, maybe I can add um, that, OK, it's always nice to give bone-targeting agents, obviously, for osteoporosis prophylactis. But um, then there is also lifestyle changes, right? And you, Australians, are very strong in that. So so really telling people to do exercise and your exercise programs from Australia that have been published are so strong that I would have no chance ever to do it. So I don't know about you, the men that you are having in your practice, oh. but also like st- stopping smoking, not drinking too much alcohol. Um, I, just, I just think this is something where the patients could do something. And we, we have also to remind them that uh, these lifestyle changes probably really help something um, in that situation, especially if we give now also the, the PRED with the RB um, in addition to the ADT in these patients who live a long time, hopefully afterwards.
1: And and Silky, while you're there, do you want to tell us a little bit about APCCC? Um, And we'll put the links in the show notes uh, as well to this. But um, I mean, I think anyone listening to this podcast is aware of the original St. Gallen paper and then the updated Basel paper, uh, incredible consensus (laughs) meeting that you run, which is brilliant to attend in person, the most incredible plenary sessions. And then the panel vote is fantastic. Um, But you have an upcoming um, virtual event, I think, ahead of next year's main um, two-yearly meeting.
4: Yeah, because in, in reality, it would have been two years now, kind of. Um, but obviously, with the COVID, we have uh, thought it maybe safer to postpone it until April next year. The face-to-face meeting, that will probably then be a hybrid meeting. But a lot of people, especially in Davis in reality, have told us, no, 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 but you have to do something because there's so much data coming and uh, there's so much changes. Yay. So we have decided to do a virtual meeting with only four or five people really coming um, to the studio live um, on the 9th of October for the hot topics and one of the hot topics you will love it is psma as you know <laughs> so in diagnostics and in therapy because i think this psma pet makes a lot of more problems than it solves right now so so i guess so that's really one of the important points um the second is metastatic hormone sensitive disease where we have just listened to piece one data and have now to decide who needs triple systemic therapy um, and i think that's a important topic as well And then all the other topics that Noel has already mentioned, the radiotherapy to the primary in the metastatic setting, that I think in Europe has been really taken on very well. But the Americans are still very skeptic, and we don't really know why, but um, it is like it is. And then the third topic is going to be molecular genetics, um, germ cell, uh, sorry, germline and um, also somatic, and the BOP inhibitors. And um, so this is the the big, huge third session that we will have.
1: Yeah, so all just a one-day thing on, a, on yeah. a Saturday. Of course, it's middle of the night here in Australia, tediously as usual, but yeah, we're used to sorry, that.
4: Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, you have to be awake. You have to be awake. So, we will. So Ian promise to be
1: there. Yeah, and Michael Hoffman's doing a talk for it as well, I think. Um, oh, so yeah, congr- we'll put the link in and it's it's a totally fantastic meeting and uh, and the, the main meeting will be next March or April, I think, the in-person, the whole pan- yeah, three, yeah, four day meeting, and, Yeah, which is a fantastic yeah. meeting and I remember coming back from the last one, run, um, uh, having a chat with the team here saying, look, this is a thing that we need to try and encourage our trainees and ourselves our colleagues to go to. It's the most incredible intense meeting where it's one room, only one room, it's not multiple parallels, so you just sit in one place and you get these Incredible updates from the, the, the world leaders in this area. Um, and it's running with great um, humor as well by um, Silky mm-hmm. and Aurelius Omlin you know, the, the goat bell and the cowbell, bell etc <laughs> No way are you going over your allotted time, but it, it is a great <laughs> meeting. And um, now, fantastic. Noel, the, the last question I want to ask you a little bit provocatively um, as a urologist. So it very, seems very clear to me that urologists and, and radiation oncologists should just be in charge of this whole disease space, then, isn't it? Well, come on, Abby, it's easy. I know the dose of prednisone. What's the thing about LFTs and blood pr- I can't remember. I wrote it down somewhere. Anyway, this should be very straightforward for us in the clinic. We don't need to be troubling our very busy um, GU medical oncologists. Um, we can just you know, keep this territory to ourselves, I think. Isn't, is that right?
0: Well, I, I, I'm a firm believer in multidisciplinary care. <laughs> for <these> patients. Uh, <laughs> we, we have, on a weekly basis, uh, I sit down in a joint clinic with my uh, clinical oncology colleague, his research fellow's there. Our research people are there. Our research nurses are there. It's a terrific clinic. Um, and we each feed off each other. So uh, I do believe that urologists should be prescribing the hormonal treatments. Uh, but I don't really subscribe to the notion that every urologist should be doing that. I think those who are skilled and trained and up to date, well, why not? But it's a collaborative approach, isn't it? You know, this isn't a one size Uh, for the urologist and one side to the medical oncologist, clinical oncologist, you know, you sit together, you discuss what's best for the patient, and you divide the patient up, send them down a certain line. And, of course, one has to remember what the patient wants because that's a really important question, which is not always resolved in a a monodisciplinary clinic, which is always biased, in my experience of it. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm as bad as anybody else. um, That we need to just put our egos to one side, I think, and get on with looking after the patients as best we can.
1: Yeah, look, I totally agree, yeah. of course. And um, it was interesting when, when these um, androgen synthesis pathway inhibitors came pre-chemo, you know, the, the, the companies marketing these drugs were running around trying to figure out, okay, well, um, who's going to be prescribing this? Who do we need to influence, you know? And they started coming to urologists thinking we have all the patients. And I think my main messages to them were, um, yes, u- urologists have all these patients. And yes, it's right that you inform u- urologists about this new, new management option. And yes, if a urologist wants to um, initiate treatment they should feel confident about using these drugs but the most important message was really just getting the urologists and the radiation oncologists to know that there is a new management option for my patients yeah. i need to discuss this with my multidisciplinary colleagues and if he or she chooses to initiate themselves with multidisciplinary support yep sure but you know, more more likely more typically of course for us is that we'll refer them to our gu medical oncologists but um people needn't get caught up in uh, who do we need to influence to um uh, to, 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 to as a prescriber here um they just need to make sure that people who see these patients and that includes this key paper are well informed about this new standard of care Uh, and if he or she wants to try and institute the standard of care themselves sure but it's just so important that they're aware of the standard of care so it can be offered to the patient most typically in a multidisciplinary um, fashion I think.
3: Yeah I mean the two points Declan I think um, and Noel makes a very good point firstly is that it really comes down to who feels comfortable looking after the patient so I have no issue with urologists prescribing this as long as they Feel comfortable managing the toxicities, but also then the you know the long term, yeah. Um, yeah, the 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 long term um, um, uh, sort of uh, overall medical management of these patients, including their bone health and etc. So that's the that's the first point. I think the second point is that in the end, it doesn't really matter as long as these patients get better, you know, get optimal systemic therapy. And this is slightly digressing, but if you look at the MHSPC data out of the US, there's some very nice data from Niraj Aguil and Dan George. There's the UK data. There's our own data that we publish from the Victorian, yeah, you, know, from the, um, you, you know, from um, the, you know, from the peak of, you know, Victorian registry. In mHSPC, most men are still getting ADT alone, which is just mm. so far below standard of care. I mean, we're we're talking about triplet therapy versus double in 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 mHSPC, and yet most men are getting A- ADT alone, even in the US where they've got access to you know um in in you know to the to the AR pathway inhibitors. So in the end, it doesn't matter who prescribes, as long as men are getting optimal systemic therapy or optimal therapy, full stop, including systemic therapy. And yet men with prostate cancer aren 't and it 's just staggering when you look at you go down to the you know, breast cancer clinics and you 've got you know these um, you know poor women with ER positive breast cancer who are on eighth ninth tenth line chemotherapy they don 't leave anything on the shelf they give everything they can and yet we have men who don 't get optimal you know, systemic therapy who never get chemotherapy or and, and that's that 's the challenge for me it 's not who prescribes it 's actually getting these you know you know, getting, you know, translating these from these fantastic NEJM, you know, and, and, uh, you know, um, papers, getting them into the clinic and and actually implementing the data. That's the challenge actually more than who actually administers it.
1: Yeah, Silky, over to you. That's a, uh, you know, we need to keep banging that drum. Well, look, (laughs) thank you very much, uh, folks, for that fantastic talk. I really enjoyed that. It's uh, such a privilege to speak to people who've been involved in what is an immediately practice-changing study, I think, Renew, You can clearly see that. It's not one of these, oh, yeah, but what about this and what about that in the control arm? It's not. It's very straightforward, um, as Noel summar, uh, summarised so nicely earlier on. So we're very grateful to you for taking the time and congratulations again to Stampede, investigators, patients, hospitals, clinicians, everyone involved for this most amazing, continuous stream of fantastic practice-changing papers that you continue to give us. Um, so It's great pleasure and uh, thanks for inviting us on. <laughs>
4: yeah, that was fun.
1: Thank you very much, Suki, and uh, thank you very much, Noel. And thanks, Arun, for coming into the studio at 6 o'clock in the morning. And
3: I stayed awake the whole time as a medical oncologist at 6am. <laughs> Is it because you got yeah.
1: a brand new baby at home who's about two months old? Um, that's all we have time for. We'll be back soon with some more ESMO-related stuff. There's still so much to talk about, and we will be back after APCCC uh, to talk about some of the great stuff that they're discussing at that meeting in a yeah. couple of weeks' time. But that's it from us from now. Uh, good day and goodbye.